Remember the word that we've been saying, holy means what? You remember? Starts with an O. Otherly, right? Otherly. That God is different. God is strange, carries with it a negative connotation, but he's strange. He's different. He's unlike any word or concept or thing or person that you can imagine. He is otherly. Um, and, and so we've been talking about just the majesty and the glory and what an exciting thing it is that the God of heaven has invited human beings back into his presence to live with him. At, or maybe it's better to say he would live with them. He would tabernacle with them. He would live. And I, I, I love that Mark got to make that announcement because it's given me an opportunity to just sit and look at that graphic for a second and, and think about God wanted to hang out with his people in a tent. And here he gives them these instructions to say, I want to make you holy so that I can live with you because I want a relationship with you that badly. I want to take away your sin and, and make you clean and pure and make you different. In, and so that you are the most unusual people on the face of the earth so that I can live with you and I can be your God and you can be my people, but not just for your own sake, for the sake of the world. And we talked about that a few weeks ago, that the purpose of Israel becoming a kingdom of priests was that as a nation, they could bring God to the nations and they could bring the nations to God, that they could bring from God all of these blessings to the world and bring from the world the praises to God and bring the world to the feet of God. That was their job. They were supposed to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Now, the only one who truly fulfilled that was the one perfect Israelite, the, the one that became everything in one person, everything that God is and everything that Israel was supposed to be, merge in the person of Jesus. That's the gospel, isn't it? That everything Israel was supposed to be and everything that God is came together perfectly in the person of Jesus. And he fulfilled everything. And that's really what I want us to talk about tonight is how Jesus fulfills, and we've really touched on that every week as we've gone through this series, how Jesus fulfills Leviticus, Jesus fulfills the law, Jesus fulfills the prophets, Jesus is what everything is pointing forward to. And tonight I want to focus on these these feasts that we find in in Leviticus. But but I, I just want to touch just a little bit on what what Mike and Richard talked about the last couple of weeks about us being otherly, us being a holy people. And there was part of that that was ceremonial, right? I mean, you know, don't eat this and don't wear these clothes. And we look at those rules and we think, well, that's kind of weird. Why could they not wear clothes that were interwoven? Why could they not wear cloth that was two different kinds of cloth sewn together? Or why could they not sow two different kinds of seed in a field? Well, there's a, there's a, there's a metaphor in that, isn't there? That God wanted his people to be a distinct people, an otherly people. 
And so those rules about don't sow this kind of cloth and this kind of cloth together, or don't sow two different kinds of uh, seed in your field, it's because you're supposed to be distinct and different. Not because, na 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 better than you, you know, nothing like that. It was that you you are an otherly people so that you can bring the rest of the people to him. And do we remember the very first story that of the people when they went into Israel? The very, the, into Canaan, the very first thing that happens when they get there is that a Gentile prostitute becomes a part of the people, right? I mean, it's amazing. That's the purpose that they were supposed to be fulfilling, is to be so different. And everything that God told them, from the food that they ate to what they touched and didn't touch, and, and especially the things like the sexual laws, and also the things like and, and I've been really struck by this recently. The care that they had for slaves and foreigners and widows and, and orphans. That the people that other cultures considered unprofitable or, or, or not, uh, didn't contribute to the greater good and that were expendable kind of people. In Israel, they were treated with respect. Special laws were put into place to protect them uh, because this group of people was supposed to be different. Somebody asked me not too long ago, he's an atheist, he, he was a member of the church. I guess he is a member of the church. He's just lost his way right now. And um, he asked me why I believe. And, and I said, one of the reasons I believe is that Christianity, above any other religion in the world, even Judaism, because Christianity has become the fullest, the fullest revelation of that. That Christianity fulfills my hunch that people, human beings, really are important and valuable. Right? I mean, if you're, if you're a humanist, if you don't believe in God, if you believe that this, the cosmos was all just some sort of an accident and there was a big explosion and there was a puddle of mud and somehow, some way, there was lightning and somehow something crawled out of there and over the course of many, many years, it eventually became animal and then human. If that's what you believe, then, then really human beings are not valuable. There is no purpose to anything. There is no value to anything. There's no more valuable, no more value to the human being than there is to the pond scum because that's where we came from if there is no God. And in every single worldview and, and different way of looking at things, human beings are not nearly as valuable as they are in the Torah and fulfilled especially in Jesus Christ. That Jesus shows us that human beings are really valuable. And I think even the skeptic, even the agnostic, even the atheist, deep down inside knows that, don't they? They know that their family members have a purpose. They know that their family members are valuable. They even know that their neighbors are valuable and deserve to be protected and deserve to be loved. And Christianity shows us why we feel that way, why we naturally think that way, why we naturally believe that human beings really are valuable. And so, we read through this marvelous story that God has given us of, of his people and him calling these people and him living with these people. And here in Leviticus chapter 23, we start to read about these ritual feasts and ceremonies and holy days that God says, set these days apart. And I want us to look at those real quick. So uh, the sp special days or holy days, I forget how I labeled that next side slide there, Ralph. Oh, I'm sorry, I may have had a scripture up there, but that's okay. Let's go to the Holy Days. Okay, so Leviticus 23 and verse 3, the Sabbath. 
So every, every week has seven days, right? Um, and the seventh day, the Sabbath day, was supposed to be set apart, was supposed to be an, a holy day, a, an otherly day, right? Unlike the other days. In that, specifically, what were you not supposed to do on the Sabbath? Work, right? So you weren't supposed to work. Now, on the surface, and if you look at the Pharisees of Jesus' day, how that, that law, in fact, Malachi came to me the other day and he was telling me how one of his teachers here told him that in Israel, that on the Sabbath, that the elevator stops on every floor so that nobody has to push the button every floor, you know, because that would be working. So don't push the button and the elevator just goes ahead and stops on every single floor. Um, and there's all kinds of, if you go to Israel right now on the Sabbath, there's all kinds of different rules like that, like you can do this, but you can't do that. That was the, the same way it was in Jesus' day. And so it's kind of hard for us to look at the Sabbath the way I think God intended for it to be looked at and the way Jesus revealed it, that the Sabbath was for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? That God wanted his people to have a day of rest. But the reason why it was so enforced even by the death penalty, if you intentionally worked on the Sabbath day, there were times where people were put to death for working on the Sabbath. And you think, what kind of loving God put somebody to death for working on a Saturday? Think about what this law taught God's people about work. Think about what it teaches them about trust and faith and God. See, the Sabbath was an exercise in faith, wasn't it? To say, Stop working and trust me. Just stop and trust me. It reminds me of Psalm 127. We covered this psalm a few weeks ago in, in our Bible classes. But it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in, in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep. Because the one who trusts in God can rest, right? But some of us haven't learned that lesson, have we? Some of us are workaholics. And we work like everything in the world depends on us. And I can't slow down for even a second because if I slow down for a second, everything's going to come crashing down, right? I got to keep going. I got to keep going. And we have this something inside of us that drives us on and we think, we know it's not true, and we say, yeah, Wes, I know that's not true. I know the world won't really come crashing down if I stop working. Do you? Do I? My wife's looking at me like, yeah, I hope you're listening to yourself, Wes. (laughs) Do we know that? Do we know that if we stop, just stop, just put the phone down, just put the laptop down, just walk away, stop and rest and trust God? Because if you don't trust God, If your work isn't an outflow of your trust of God, if your work is trying to hedge your bets and say, you know what, I'm pretty sure it does depend on me, then it's in vain, the psalmist says. In vain. You stay awake and you work so hard and you labor so hard and you watch so hard, but it's in vain because you don't trust God. So God says every week, one day, don't do anything but trust me. It's good, isn't it? It shows us how much God loves us, but it also shows us the true place of work. Work is good so long as it's about trusting God, but if we trust God, we can work really hard and we can rest really well. 
But if we don't trust God, we'll do one of those unhealthily. Unhealthily, if that's a word. We'll do that in an unhealthy way, won't we? And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath, isn't he? Because Jesus offers us salvation that isn't based on works, but on faith. Grace through faith says, if you come to Jesus and trusting faith and you're baptized into him and you, you just trust him, that's it, you trust him, you enter his rest, the Hebrew writer puts it, Hebrews chapter 4. We enter his Sabbath rest. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath rest, isn't he? That's what we're doing. We do good works not in order to be saved, but we do good works because we are saved, because we are trusting in Jesus, because we know that it's not dependent on our works, but on what he did at the cross. So Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath. Second, the Passover. So on the 14th day of the first month, they would celebrate and remember the Passover. Now, we remember that story, right, in Exodus, how that night, the end of the plagues, how there was one last and final plague that brought Egypt to its knees, and how the people were supposed to eat this meal and take the blood of the lamb and put it over the the doorpost, right? And the angel of death would pass over them. Now, Obviously, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. But the way that Exodus and the rest of the Torah talks about it is that in this act, God redeemed his people. He ransomed them. In other words, he, he, he bought them back But sometimes when we hear that word redeem or ransom or purchase in the New Testament, sometimes we forget what story we're a part of, right? And we're like, well, who did God buy us from? I know the blood of Jesus bought us, but who did he pay? Where did that money go? It's like, no, it's not, it's not money. It's, it's not a purchase like that. It's supposed to remind you of the Passover. See, That's why Leviticus is so important, isn't it? That's why the Old Testament is so important, because you have to know what story you're a part of. When Jesus shed his blood, it ransomed us in that it delivered us from slavery, right? It wasn't like a transaction. He wasn't paying anybody. He offered up his blood so that like like the Passover lamb, the blood could be sprinkled upon us and we could be brought out and belong to God. That, that's what happened. When, when the firstborn of Egypt died, God said, now I own because I, I bought all of your firstborn. I saved all of your firstborn. Now your whole nation belongs to me. And then when every firstborn was born, they had to kind of buy them back from God so that they weren't a priest. They had to kind of go and, and, and go to God and offer sacrifices so they could redeem back their family member, and so they could live a, a normal life and do what they needed to do. But, but in that act, God was saying, you as a nation now belong to me because I've saved you, I've delivered you. And so when we read in the New Testament that Jesus ransomed us, that he redeemed us, that means that he, he delivered us. We're supposed to think delivery, exodus, coming out of slavery, through the waters of the baptism, through the waters of the Red Sea, and into the promised land, out of Egypt, out of darkness, out of slavery, out of bondage, out of exile, and into freedom, into the promised land, into the presence of God. 
Now, along with the Passover, this isn't a second one on the on the screen, but along with the Passover, there was the week-long feast of unleavened bread. So right after the Passover, on the 15th of the month, uh, there was a week-long feast of unleavened bread. Now, leaven usually represents sin, doesn't it? I was talking with somebody a couple weeks ago, and I was thinking about the different ways that Leviticus gives us metaphors to understand sin. Mold is one of those metaphors. Skin disease is one of those metaphors that, that they would talk about, they would talk about the, the disease, the, the leprous spot in a house. Really, that's kind of like mold, right? And that if, if the, the moldy spot didn't go away, you, you should probably move out of the house, right? And there's some practicality to that, right? Cause you're going to die. You know, it's not good for you to breathe all that, whatever. But, but sin is that way in that it spreads and it takes over. And if it's not dealt with, it consumes. And, and, and leaven is that way, in that when you put a little bit of leaven in bread, it spreads throughout the whole lump and it affects everything. You can't just put a little bit in there and it just affect a tiny little piece. It's going to affect all of the lump of dough, right? And, and so you and I kind of know that, don't we? When you say something you shouldn't say or do something you shouldn't do, you kind of feel that guilt and shame welling up inside of you. You can kind of feel that black moldy spot inside of you. And it has to be dealt with, doesn't it? It has to be cleansed. It has to be atoned for. And what we normally do, though, is we bury it and we hide it and we deal with it in sinful ways. We self-medicate it. We feel bad because we did this thing and because we did this thing at work and I'm feeling guilty because I did this thing and then I come home and I yell at my wife. Well, now I feel bad because I yelled at my wife and then I go and put my kids to bed. I'm in a bad mood because I've yelled at my wife and I did something at work I shouldn't have done and then I start yelling at my kids and I'm short-tempered with them. Well, now I've, I've done that and now I feel guilty about that and I go to bed and I wake up in a bad mood and we do this for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then it drives us to this and that, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse, doesn't it? And Jesus comes, and he takes away the leaven. He takes away the moldy spot. He takes away the blemish. He takes away the sin, and he leaves us clean and pure and atoned for. It's gone. And so as a metaphor, all that week they get rid of, and even before the feast and Passover came, they get rid of all the leaven in their house. As a metaphor, that that's what we need to do is get rid of all of the sin in our life. But really it's Jesus that ultimately deals with and takes away the sin that's in our life. Okay, so uh, the, the next one is the Feast of First Fruits. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14. Feast of first fruits. You know, it's kind of funny that when we talk about offering God our first fruits, we usually think that that means something like um, just giving God off the top, right? So somebody gives us, you know, a check for $1,000, and we say, well, I want to give God the first fruits, and so we take part of that off of the top, and we give it to God before we spend any of the rest of it. That's that's a good practice. But really, first fruits... Are, it was a feast that, that they would have when they would harvest the very first piece of grain out of the field, before the rest of it was ready to harvest. Think about that for a second. They would take the very first of it, before they knew, is this going to be a good harvest or not so good harvest? There, there still could be a hailstorm, or there still could be locusts that come in, or there still could be uh, mold that grows in our field and kills the whole crop. I really don't know how this harvest is going to turn out until after the harvest is done. But before any of that happened, They would take one sheaf of grain, 
They would take their first fruits, the very beginning of the harvest, and take it to God and offer as an offering, as an act of gratitude, but as a hopeful expectation of what's to come. To say, I know that you're going to bless me with a good harvest. I know that you're going to take care of me. And as this act of good faith, knowing that you are going to take care of me, I'm giving you this in an act of hopeful expectation. Now, think about how that applies to what the New Testament says about Jesus' resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you see? Do you see that there's going to be a resurrection where all of God's people are going to be transformed. Their dead bodies are going to be transformed into new bodies that will never die. And Jesus is the first fruit of that. The first foretaste of that, the very beginning of the harvest, to say, you see, this is what's going to happen. Do you see? This is how the harvest is going to turn out. Do you see? It's already begun. The harvest has already begun, and the resurrection of Jesus is the foretaste of that. So you ask me, how do I know that the dead will be raised? Because the harvest has already started. Because the resurrection has already begun. Jesus is the first fruit of that. And at the end of the harvest... Well, we'll know how all that turns out when that happens. But Jesus is the first fruit of the harvest. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. His resurrection is our foretaste of what's to come. That what is true of Jesus in that he was raised imperishable and raised in glory. Everything that 1 Corinthians 15 has to say about his resurrection, that will be true of you if you are in Christ Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news that death will be undone for you. Death will have no victory over you. How do I know that's true? Because Jesus is the first fruits of the harvest. The harvest has already started, and it will be concluded on the day he returns when all of the dead in Christ will be raised with a life for the age to come. So the next feast is the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. So 50 days after Passover. So all this is happening in the springtime and right at the beginning of the harvest. And then uh, after the harvest is done, Pentecost, 50 days, 50 penta uh, after Passover, uh, then they would have uh, Pentecost. Now, Primarily, this is a celebration of the good harvest that God has given us. So you see how the first fruits, and then after the harvest is done, then we celebrate what God has given us. So the first fruits is expectation. The uh, Pentecost is thankful for what has, has already unfolded. Now, again, the foreshadowing is just amazing. But at the end of Leviticus 23, at verse 22, he says this. Now, it's in the context of the harvest and in the context of these feasts. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you, shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. It's interesting that tied in with the idea of Pentecost was a, was a instruction about taking care of the Gentile sojourner in the land of Israel. 
And that's what's happened. That, that's what happened on Pentecost, isn't it? That, that the Spirit was poured out on all flesh, beginning with, so the harvest is beginning with the children of Israel, and then the edges, so to speak, are us, right? The nations. And, and that message continued to go out to Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth, and that's us. And, and we've gotten to, as it were, harvest the edge of the nation of Israel and, and be a part of that great harvest. So Jesus brings his salvation first to the Jew, as Paul puts it, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. And Pentecost is a foreshadowing of that. And again, it is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, verse 24 starts kind of the fall, the fall uh, feasts. And then we start with the Feast of Trumpets. In the fall, the trumpets were sounded and people were called to worship and to rest and to repentance and to think about, think about who they were and what they were called to. Um, but it's interesting that in the New Testament, when trumpets are talked about, it's almost always in connection with judgment. When Jesus comes back, the trumpets will sound. Judgment will be announced. It's here. It's done. Everything is done. In the book of Revelation, when the trumpets are sounded, it usually has to do with judgment. So that's, that's Jesus fulfilling even that, isn't it? That the people were called to repentance and to think about leading up to the Day of Atonement in this context. But for us, there will be a final trumpet sound and judgment will come. Um, next, the Day of Atonement. We talked about that at length a few, a link, at length a few weeks ago. Uh, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 37. The high priest would take the atoning blood into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the people. Take, a, take away their sin. Um, of course, it's God taking away their sin. This, this, this blood being offered with the presupposition that God is who he says he is and that his people love him and trust him to forgive their sins. And so in repentant faith, they would offer this lamb so that their sins as a community would be taken care of. And the book of Hebrews describes in great detail that Jesus has done that, not in a physical made-with-hands kind of a tent, but that he has entered into the actual holy place where God is and offered one sacrifice forever, that it's done. Atonement has been done. You, If you're in Christ and trusting in Christ, then accept your Sabbath rest. Stop. Stop saying, I wish, I hope, I'm, I hope I'm good enough, I hope I'm forgiven. Stop. One sacrifice that if you put your faith in Jesus, if you're buried with him and you walk with him, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from every sin, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's done. It's finished. The day of atonement has come. Uh, the Feast of Booths, Leviticus chapter 23, 42 through 43. For eight days, they would, they would live in booths. They would live in tents, uh, kind of makeshift shelters to remind them of the time when they wandered in the wilderness. And, and to this day, Jews still continue to do this, where they live in, in tabernacles, in, in temporary dwelling places. And again, Jesus fulfills that. John chapter 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, that Jesus is dwelling amongst us and came in his fleshly body to dwell amongst us, to tabernacle with us. Uh, then the Sabbath year, Leviticus 25, uh, 1 through 7. I know I'm running out of time, huh? 
Leviticus chapter 25, 1 through 7, every seven years, so every seven days, they would have a Sabbath, and then every seven years, they would have a Sabbath year. And on the Sabbath year, God wanted the land to rest. Now, here's something interesting. Now, I'm not an environmentalist, so to speak, but the more I've read the Torah, the more I've read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the more interesting it is to me that the earth itself is a character in the story that God is is unfolding in front of us, that God cares about the creation that he has made. This planet is good. God called it good. God called everything he made very good, right? It's good, and, and God says that it's good. And um, and he says that, that the Canaanites that are living there are being vomited out by the land. They've made the land sick, and the land is kicking them out. It's vomiting them out. And God tells his people that when you go in, every seventh year you are to let the land rest. But I think about the New Testament and how Romans chapter 8 says this, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, again, God cares about his creation. Uh, and then finally, and we'll end with this, is the Jubilee. And the Jews, we never have any record that they ever celebrated the Jubilee. But again, if anything would make a people otherly, it would be this. That every seven days was supposed to be a Sabbath. And then every seven years was supposed to be a Sabbath year. And then every seven times seven years, every 49 years, was supposed to be a Jubilee where everything got a big reset. It's like a huge reset button, and it just gets pushed, and everything goes back to the way it was supposed to be. Everything goes back. Every land that had been sold or given to somebody else or that they, they forfeited it because they got, they got behind in their bills or whatever, everything went back to its original owners. Every slave got set free. Every debt got erased. Everything was reset. And can't we see how that's fulfilled in Jesus? That Jesus is our reset button, that it's already begun, but that especially when Jesus comes back, everything will go back to the way it was supposed to be. That Jesus is our reset. He forgives all the sins. All the debts are wiped away. All of the slaves are set free. Everything is being undone. And and we think about Luke chapter 4. I'll close with this. I know I'm out of time. Luke chapter 4. Jesus is in Nazareth, and he, he goes up to the, the synagogue, as is his, his custom on the Sabbath day. Verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It is the year of the Lord's favor. The scripture has been fulfilled.